This podcast is a co-production of Slate and the Appeal, a new publication about the justice system. And it's a companion to my new book, also called Charged, and available wherever you buy books. Thanks for listening. Previously on Charged. Terari wrestled with temptation while he was in the Youth Diversion Program, YCP. He got caught between the expectations of his social worker, Maxim Kreingold, and his friends. So now it's like you in a you in a battle now. <laughs> like you got the, the angel on your shoulder and the devil on your shoulder telling you you got Mr. Maxim and your friends. YCP's mission is to pull kids back from the edge of crime. But sometimes, directly or indirectly, the biggest threat comes from YCP itself. I'm Emily Bazelon, and this is Charged, a true punishment story inside New York's gun court. Over the last two and a half years in gun court, I've talked to a couple of dozen defendants. I followed them through YCP, interviewing them in places that had my producers pulling their hair out. Like in the echoing hallway on the 19th floor while they waited for a court appearance. Or while they played around with audio and videotape in a class they'd signed up for. Or as they ate a cheeseburger at a nearby noisy diner. There were people with long rap sheets in gun court. But they just weren't the hardened shooters that Mayor de Blasio promised to put away. I'm not cherry-picking here. According to the city's own reports, three out of four of the defendants were facing gun charges for the first time. I actually went through 200 files myself, one by one, and what I found went further. The vast majority of the people in gun court had no felony conviction on their record at all. A lot of the kids could put up a tough front, but underneath, they were panicked, and as often as not, they were there with their terrified parents. That's how I met Deontay. He was 17. He was sitting on a bench on the 19th floor with his father, a nurse who grew up in Trinidad. He used to send Deontay there for the summers to visit his grandparents. I used to tell him when he was in elementary school to tell his friends, yeah, I I milked the cow. I know how to get eggs from the coop, from the the chicken coop, literally, because my grandmother has a farm. My mom's a beautiful house in the West. As it happened, it was at the West Indian Day Parade in Brooklyn that Deontay got caught with a gun. He was all getting getting dressed and he was waiting on girls and stuff to come out the buildings and he was gonna walk up the block or whatever. And while I'm waiting for the waiting for a girl to come out come outside her building, the cops pulled me over. And how come you were the one carrying the gun? Because I didn't really want my friend to have it on his waist because I felt like if he would have took it, he probably, he probably would have went to jail for longer than me. This calculus came up regularly in my reporting. The kids knew the cops could show up, and they made a spot judgment call about how an arrest could go down and do the least harm to the group. The guy without a record took the gun to spare a friend a longer sentence. He's a two-time felon. Uh-huh. So like, if he would have got caught with that gun, he would have went to jail for life. But Deontay hadn't factored in gun court. Like Terari, he was expecting something like probation. But by taking the fall for the gun, he ended up with a -a three-and-a-half-year prison sentence. Then, his lawyer maneuvered his case through the escape hatch of YCP, the program run by the DA's office that diverted you from prison and gave you a chance to have your conviction vacated and sealed. In YCP, Deontay met a young social worker named Laura Smith. 
For her, success hinged on building a close relationship. Fiance is like a little annoying brother. <laughs> like every time I would talk to him, he would always have something to say back. Every time I told him to do something, he always had something else to do. And I realized I put all my attention and love into him because I wanted him to get out. I, I always told him, like, I don't want to see your face anymore in here. Like, I, if you, I see you outside, yeah, we'll probably talk if you're not annoying me. But <laughs> besides that. Um, yeah, we would communicate regularly. Like, it was just, it would be natural to just talk to Miss Smith because I, I think of her like a big sister or auntie or whatever. Maybe one of those young ones. Okay, okay. I ain't gonna say your grandma. (laughs) Deontay had recently suffered a traumatic brain injury from high school football. It's a type of injury that often has a lasting impact on impulse control. Deontay got into a lot of arguments with his girlfriend and his family. One day, outside the courtroom, he talked about his default strategy for dealing with them. We all start cursing at each other and start going all, all ballistic. I go outside, go with my go with my bros and smoke, smoke a blunt, come back in, relax myself. Smoking a blunt wasn't what Laura recommended. Sure, it was a common way to calm yourself down. But for Deontay, marijuana posed a real risk. This was true even though the drug became practically legal for most people in Brooklyn five years ago. Brooklyn District Attorney Ken Thompson made national headlines when he announced he would no longer prosecute as many people for possessing small amounts of marijuana. Now, But this new lenience wasn't universal, and that meant it came with a familiar hitch. In September 2017, WNYC reported that you were twice as likely to still get charged for marijuana if you were Black or Latino than if you were white or Asian. And if you were a black kid in YCP and you got caught with marijuana, well, then you really had a problem. The cops would run your name, and your open case would pop up, and the police would haul you in, even if your friends walked. The social workers saw as many as a third of the kids they worked with get picked up this way. It can be anything. I've had people get arrested for not swiping the Metro card, and it's all because a case is open. Cops had a rationale for this. The NYPD wouldn't talk to me, but in a story about YCP in the New York Times, the deputy police commissioner put it like this, quote, if you carry a gun in New York City, we will be relentless in following you. That didn't mean we'll follow you in the moment when we see you with a gun. It meant for the foreseeable future, we will put your name and description on a watch list. Once you were on the list, the cops singled you out. They're targeting the kids. Um, once they have that open case, they're a target. When you say they're targeting, who, who's they? Um, the police officers. Um, they're, you know, there's a, a certain precinct or a certain officer that always comes to them and always arrests them. Deontay was one of the YCP kids who got picked up for smoking marijuana. He had that three and a half years of prison hanging over his head. And he had the head of YCP, Ed Pichardo, on his case. Pichardo was Laura and Maxim's boss. Defense lawyers worried about him showing up in court. Pichardo was a prosecutor, not a social worker. And when he got frustrated with a kid, he'd ask the judge to put him in jail, to teach him a lesson. Pichardo asked for jail time for Deontay. In light of Deontay's brain injury, his lawyer argued he should receive therapy instead. The judge didn't go for therapy or jail. Instead, she sent Deontay home with an ankle monitor. 
It was the size of a chunky retro cell phone, and it was strapped to his leg. Ankle monitors. When you picture them, it's hard not to think about misbehaving pop stars or mob bosses who pose a flight risk. But in Brooklyn, the DA's office has been using them on a lot of young defendants. On the 19th floor, the kids talked about how to adapt to life attached to an electronic box, what clothes to wear, and how to sleep with the monitors plugged in so they could recharge overnight. Here's a former defendant named Tyree. After like two months of the bracelet, you don't really even, you know, you've already bought in like the big pairs of pants and sweatpants and stuff. You already like outgrown not knowing how to like move around with it. You know, you know how to hide it now and you know how to like fold your legs when you sit down so nobody sees it. You know how to like twist it or you know how to like not hit it on something. So you know how to sleep at nighttime because the wire is like 10 feet long. The monitors were a form of 24-7 digital incarceration. Even though, let me tell you a secret, the ones they were using in Brooklyn couldn't pinpoint your location. They could show you were in a certain range, but not whether you were inside your house. So the ankle monitors weren't so much about precise surveillance. They were about preserving the illusion of surveillance, making the kids think they were being 100% watched. In the DA's office, it was one person's job to keep track of the electronic signals the monitor sent. If your battery got low, he pressed an app, and that made the monitor ring and buzz. The ringing and the buzzing is supposed to get you upset. It's supposed to make you comply. Some kids just couldn't get used to the monitors, like Deontay. It's very annoying. Last night, it rang like four times. Can't even get a job with this, to be honest. I can't walk in no job and ask them for an application because I got this incubation on my leg. One night, after more than a week with the monitor on, Deontay couldn't take it anymore. I cut it off because I was frustrated and I was angry with, with this being on my leg because this thing is, is tight and it... Is it embarrassing to Yeah, it's, a bar- it's embarrassing. I understand you were angry and frustrated, but did, were, did you also know that that was going to cause trouble? Or? No, I didn't. I, I, wasn't even, I wasn't even thinking that far along. The consequences were immediate. When Pichardo found out what Deontay had done, he went straight to the judge. And this time, Deontay went straight to jail. If you've been enjoying this podcast, I want to let you know that it wouldn't have been possible without Slate's membership program, Slate Plus. The support from members has helped fund exciting projects at Slate, like Slow Burn and Standoff and the daily journalism you see on Slate.com every day. If you want to help Slate continue this kind of work, please sign up for Slate Plus now at $5 for the first year, and you'll get benefits like ad-free podcast feeds and discounted tickets to Slate's live events. And you'll get even more episodes of Charged. Sign up at Slate.com slash Charged. Deontay's case reminded me, whatever relief YCP offered, the program was still an arm of gun court, with all its implacable harshness. While I was following Deontay's case, I met a 21-year-old whose nickname is Mark. Six months into the program, he started dressing differently, wearing glasses with gold wire rims. He really impressed his social worker, the same Maxim Kreingold who worked with Terrari. Mark turned into a YCP star, a poster child, for the diversion program and reform. I have three jobs now. On One of them was with the Speakers Bureau. Mark got recruited to be on panels about criminal justice. Maxim went to hear one of his speeches. And Mark spoke about his experience 
um, with the system and also just to see him wearing suit and being in the like professional, you know, with a tie and everything was really, really rewarding and cool. Mark was all set to graduate from YCP. The end date was only weeks away. But then he got into an argument with a cousin's ex-boyfriend. Someone called the police and Mark was arrested. To use the lingo of the courthouse, Mark's lawyer thought it was a bullshit charge. But still, Mark had broken the cardinal rule of no police contact. So he was summoned by Pichardo. He came in the room with a one-track mind on what he was planning to do with me already. Like, he came in the room like he knew exactly the story, like he watched it all play out. Pichardo ordered an ankle monitor for Mark. I felt... I felt like a criminal, actually. Like, for the first time, no matter how much stuff I've been involved in, like, for the first time, I felt like a criminal. Pichardo had done the same thing to a number of YCP participants. It was as if he was making himself the warden of his own digital prison. But on the morning of Mark's next hearing, his lawyer, Roy Wasserman of Legal Aid, called out Pichardo. In front of the judge, Wasserman claimed that Pichardo and the DA's office had assumed the judge's power and stolen her authority. This tape is kind of hard to hear, and none of it has the scripted polish of a Law & Order episode. But this is what high drama often sounds like in a real courtroom. Right off, Wasserman raised the stakes by saying, quote, The district attorney's office had a monitor put on my client, restricting his liberty without court permission. And in this case, the district attorney's office had uh, a monitor put on my client, restricting his liberty without court permission. Wasserman is calm, but the challenge is clear. And then he says, quote, This was an extremely serious thing that was done that should not have been done. No due process was used in this case to restrict his liberty. Extremely serious uh, thing was done that should not have been done. So my client had no notice and therefore no due process uh, was used in this case to restrict his liberty. Right now. now Wasserman was elevating a routine proceeding into a debate over the Constitution. But Pichardo didn't get it. He reminded the judge that he could force her hand by asking her to send Mark to prison for years. In the back of the courtroom, Mark's grandmother gasped. It was a giant threat. But the judge, Joanne Quinones, wasn't having it. She ordered that Mark be freed right then and there. Quote, I am ordering that the ankle monitor be removed from the defendant. I am ordering that the ankle monitor be removed from the defendant. The judge's order reverberated in the courtroom. For a long moment, there was silence. Pichardo just stood there, stripped of the power bureaucrats thrive on. And Mark and his grandmother walked out of the courtroom with a rare feeling for gun court, triumph. It felt like a great relief off my chest. He's a good kid. You know, we all messed up a time. There's no perfect person here. And he's young, and we try to keep him on track. You know, because he's a boy child. When I asked Pichardo about his use of ankle monitors, he said, quote, Sometimes we put on an ankle monitor if something happens I can't ignore. Some of these young people don't come from ideal circumstances. These are very tricky judgment calls. In the end, it wasn't just the judge who didn't think Pichardo should be making these calls. 
A couple of months after Mark's hearing, Pichardo was removed from his position as the head of YCP. The DA's office still uses ankle monitors, but plans are afoot to change and expand YCP. It's not clear yet what that means and whether the social workers will get better support. What is clear is that expanding diversion fits with Eric Gonzalez's central big idea as district attorney. We are trying to change a system which has been about punishing people for wrongdoing to say, that's fine, that there should be some accountability, but jail is truly the last option. We should be using that very limited in very limited ways. If we can do it in Brooklyn with tough neighborhoods, I think it could be done in other parts of our, of our state and our country. That sounds like a radical shift, especially for crimes that are classified as violent. But the longer I spent in gun court, the more diversion seemed workable. In spite of the forces pushing to lock kids up, most of them succeeded in the program. In the last few years, about four out of five participants have completed YCP, and only 8% have been rearrested afterward. And most of those charges were misdemeanors. A year and a half after his arrest, Terari graduated from YCP. On his last trip to the 19th floor, Maxim congratulated him. His mother was thrilled. The judge pronounced his gun case dismissed and the record sealed. That's a big deal. Terari doesn't have to check the felony box when he applies for jobs. But the truth is, there's an important way in which his record isn't sealed. The police still see the gun charges when Terari's name comes up. One day last January, months after he completed YCP, Terari left his apartment to buy some groceries. So um, I was on my way to the corner store, and basically, all I know, cops is, like, I guess the, the area been, like, hot lately and stuff. Over New Year's, there had been a robbery near Terari's housing development. And then the next day, there was a shootout. When I left to go to the corner store this morning, I was grabbed up by the police. I, very, I had a very harsh moment. It was the old, familiar drill. I'm like, what's going on? It was like, ah, you fit the description. I don't know what description I fit and stuff. Like, did the person have braids? So, yeah, they gave me a hard time because um, my name been flying around, like, in a police station. Like, yeah, he, like, I'm not a kid that get in trouble no more and stuff. But since I had my gun charged, they're going to, like, come straight to. This is what it feels like to be on a watch list. To be honest, it hurts and stuff, because, like, I'm not, I don't do nothing. Like, I'm minding my business. I go in and out, and I just feel like I'm a target Anytime I could be a target. There's more than one watch list in New York City. Like, there's one for gang involvement, a vaguely defined term, along with others that include the people with gun charges like Terari. All told, there are thousands of names on these lists, but exactly how you get on them, and especially off, that's shrouded in mystery. We do know, though, that completing a diversion program does not get you off the watch list. Neither does going to school or having a job. Terari is actually looking for summer work at the moment and planning to take community college courses in the fall, but he's still branded as a threat. One reason that's frustrating is that research has firmly established that most people age out of being high risk for committing crimes in their mid-20s, the age Terari is now. I knew I needed a change in my life. I felt like I ain't want a gun no more. In my mind, I was getting older. The gang activity is not the same as it was. I just try to have fun with my life. 
The Brooklyn DA's office knows that YCP participants remain on the watch list. We've had conversations with the police department about this. That's Meg Reese. Eric Gonzalez brought her into the DA's office to oversee all the youth and diversion programs. And they said whether they were in your program or not in your program, because they've been arrested for a gun, we are focusing on them. So I I don't know what to say. And I, I think that's true. The DA's office has yet to do anything about this. The piece that we haven't done is what is the work we can do at the precinct level to say, you should know about what this person's accomplished. They've done X, Y, and Z, they're doing really well, and figure out how to develop that relationship with the precinct. What this looks like to Tarari is that the only person who has his back is Tarari. One Tuesday morning recently, Tarari and his friends were hanging out in the grassy space outside their housing project. They were thinking about playing basketball or maybe going to a skate park when the cops pulled up. So basically, the uh, patrol car is, like, in the middle of the walkway, like, Anytime we hang out, they like drive their car right up on us, expecting us to leave, like disperse. They didn't leave. And then one of the cops got out of the car and put a friend of Tarari's in handcuffs for spitting on the grass. That to us is like, so y'all just picking at us for any little, any little reason. Tarari took out his phone and turned on the video camera. We got two cops harassing us. I'm going to do an investigation. Get back. We're investigating. You ain't investigating nothing. You said spitting on the ground. What's your badge number? I couldn't quite believe that was Tarari's voice when he sent me the video. So is that you talking or somebody else? Yeah, that was me talking. That was you? Your voice was so different. (laughs) Yeah, because I was angry. (laughs) I was angry. I'd never actually heard Tarari angry before. He's the kind of person who punctuates almost everything he says with a laugh. You've heard him. I'd been interviewing him for almost a year. And by this point, he was on a handshake and hug basis with me and my producer and our studio engineer and basically everyone else in the office. Tarari's voice in that video, deep and commanding, it seemed to grow out of an accumulation of all the times he'd been seen as a usual suspect and maybe of a somewhat newfound vision of himself. To be honest, I'm tired of police harassing us. The reason I shot that video was to show, like, This is what we have to go through. Like, I'm going to voice my opinion. Last week, the mayor's office finally responded to the request I sent for comment a month and a half ago. The response came a couple of days before Bill de Blasio announced his campaign for president. The mayor, like mayors before him, took credit for the city's drop in murders and shootings. Quote, New York City has the lowest murder and shooting rate in the nation, the lowest in the city in decades. Over the past five years, the shooting rate has declined by 32 percent. And the city attributes the success to a blended approach. The statement explained that blended approach meant, quote, more effective policing and prosecution and also programs that, quote, deploy violence interrupters. In other words, a mix of harshness and mercy, with the city setting the dial. Violence interruption is a complement to diversion. It's about training people, people like Kadeem Gibbs, often with their own gang and criminal histories, to press for resolving conflicts in their neighborhoods without guns and violent retaliation. It's a way to head off trouble on the front end, so fewer people need a second chance on the back end. In my reporting, I talk to people who are doing this work. They told me they had more hope for it than anything New York City has funded in a long time. But here's the thing. 
they don't think it goes hand in hand with tactics like watch lists because they were trying to work with many of the people targeted by those lists to treat them as potential assets rather than inevitable threats. From their perspective, the city's two approaches didn't blend at all. They were at cross purposes. I wanted to follow up with de Blasio about all of this, and his office offered to set up an interview with his top criminal justice staffer. But then, abruptly, they backed out. I don't know why. Maybe de Blasio can answer my questions from Iowa. But I'm guessing the mayor has other things on his mind. At the announcement of his presidential campaign on TV last week, a crowd gathered outside the studio. It was a couple of dozen people. According to The New Yorker, the biggest group among them were cops out to heckle the mayor. If the whole point of gun court was to thread the needle between the police and the mayor's liberal base, well, apparently the bargain hasn't held. As for the future of gun court, the mayor's office told me, quote, the city is continuing to evaluate it. I'm going to leave you with one more thought. Not to get all Webster's Dictionary about it, but I've been thinking a lot about the word penitentiary. It comes from the same root as penitence, dating back to when the hope of atonement was part of a prison's mission. People are expected to repent, redeem themselves, and then go home to live their lives. Perhaps the worst feature of our age of brute punishment is the apparent belief that people who commit crimes can never really change. And now we have the tools to watch those people forever. So they're always objects of suspicion, always called on to answer for their worst mistake. The implication here is that the human soul is not redeemable. But of course, there's so much evidence to the contrary. You just have to look for it. This episode of Charged was produced by Alvin Melleth and written by me. Jack Hitt is our senior editor, mixed by Catherine Ray Mondo, mastering and original music by Merritt Jacob. If you want to learn more about the issues raised in this show, I have a new book out. It's also called Charged, and you can check it out wherever you buy books. Additional script editing for this episode by Verilyn Williams. Additional mixing by Chow Tu. Research and fact-checking by Will Reed. Editorial direction by Josh Levine and Gabriel Roth. June Thomas is the senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. TJ Raphael is the senior producer of the Slate Podcast Network. Special thanks to Rob Smith, Sarah Leonard, Alice Whitwam, Lisa Larson-Walker, and Cameron Drews. Each week, Slate Plus members get an additional episode of Charged. This week, you'll hear Stacey Abrams, the Democratic politician and voting rights activist, talking with me about my book at the New York Public Library in April. Listen for Stacy's riff on Star Trek. She's very convincing. To learn more and sign up for Slate Plus, head to slate.com slash charged. <laughs>